Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. So today's conversation, Larry, is about preservation, and we're going to talk about a, what you call prescient preser... Let me do that again. We're going to first talk about a prescient preservationist, and that's a mouthful, Jane Holtz K. I can't wait. I want to hear you say that, prescient preservationist. Prescient preservation. Ah, you're learning all the secrets of the broadcast world. How's that, teacher? Well done. Well done. <laughs> so tell me, what, what are we talking about here? Well, I think we're talking about a very important subject because preservation is important historically, but preservation re- really leads into taking care of uh, the planet and taking care of, uh, of uh, our surroundings and I think that uh, that's a topic for the day because mm-hmm. what we're doing is spoiling the planet. And let me tell you about Jane Holtz K. and I'll see if I can lead us to where I want to go. Um, she not only was a preservationist, but she was also a landscape, not a landscape uh, arch- uh, architect, but she, her, her leanings and her education went in that direction. I, she was a true visionary. And, you know, um, my... Uh, interview of Jane Holtz K probably goes back about 15 or 18, no more than that, until it uh, goes back to when I was doing a, t- uh, a television program and when I started writing, not around 2000, around that time. You know, one thing I have to remember, Jordan, is that even though writing is a new career for me, it's now 20 years old. And for people to remember, people listening, to remember some of the people that I talk about uh, who are not you know, uh, household names, and that's, you know, Jane Holtz K was well-known, so was the following person, Jack Little. They're well-known, but I think that uh, anybody who less than 30 now, and even more than 30, is not going to know who they are. But they're very important because they're visionaries, and they're also important to me because they lived in Brookline. And I think that I'm lucky to have been to have lived in Brookline for all but two of my years because there are so many unbelievable people here. Absolutely. Your book uh, that we've talked about just illustrates a whole slew. And this lady, I'm inclined to want to know more right now, um, and the word prescient, why do you use that adjective to describe her? Well, I think she was prescient because she understood that uh, the various ways that we were doing things that – that were not good for our lives and not good for the planet. And I think that um, her writings, she wrote a couple of books, uh, show where she was going. Uh, Let me see if I can demonstrate that. Um, As I say, landscape architecture was a favorite of hers. Her sister was uh, Ellen Goodman. You probably know Ellen Goodman as a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer. For the Boston Globe. Globe For many years and and has written several books. Ellen was the better known, and I interviewed her as well. Jane was a very sweet person. Unfortunately, she got Alzheimer's uh, late in life, and uh, she's since departed. But she helped me in various ways. Um, After I got to know her, whenever I'd ask her about something, she was Johnny on the spot, uh, maybe 
Jane on the spot yeah, right. to help me out. Right. And um, her father was Jackson Holtz. You probably remember him. He ran for Congress. Well, maybe you don't because you're still very young, Jordan. I'm just a pup here with the uh, the Grand Master. But so, so she was a Brookline resident? She was, oh, yeah. Her mother and way. father lived in Brookline. Jackson okay. Holtz ran for Congress. He was a lawyer. He had a very fine law firm in Boston. He ran in 1954, so that's why you don't remember. And she went around campaigning with him, so she got to know all about Boston when she was a kid. She probably was 12, 13, and she would accompany her father, who, by the way, taught her the reading habit. He was a big reader. I think he came from Russia originally, but he got here at a very young age. And ultimately, her, uh, his widow lived across the street from us on Sumner Road, so the, in the house right there. So uh, in any event, um, so uh, she learned the reading habit from him. I used to read under the covers with a flashlight, mm. and uh, she and Ellen both read a lot. Um, so that she came to write a book that's a classic in 1980 called Lost Boston. Now, what Lost Boston was, they, there was a craze going on at, you know, at that time of ripping down old structures and putting up these new boxy-looking things. A perfect example of that is the town hall in Brookline, and there are other examples. And she, the book is basically a coffee table book with large pictures of great Boston buildings that have disappeared, and you look at them and you say, why were they ripped down? Same thing with the town hall, because she took a stance that they shouldn't rip, rip down the Brookline Town Hall. We've talked about this before, Jordan, and they shouldn't have because they put up a terrible-looking box. The other one could have been remodeled. She was at Radcliffe at the time. She was a town meeting member, I think the youngest town meeting member. She took that stance against tearing it down. A picture was taken of her uh, in front of the town hall, which was published in several newspapers, I think, and um, so that... Um, but it was ripped down, and uh, but it ultimately led to that book, Lost Boston. She also had a sense of community. Now, there was a lady called Jane Jacobs, very well known, who believed in eyes on the street, meaning that in a community, everybody was together, lived together, uh, knew each other, that when the kids were running around, uh, there were eyes, so to speak, watching them to make sure that they were okay and that they didn't get into danger and trouble to bring them down food and so forth. So uh, she spoke about that a lot. She believed that we should, like that, like uh, eyes on the street, mm. that we should live densely, that the bicycles should be used, the trains should be used, that there should be less cars that uh, we should live more like Europeans. She also wrote a book called Asphalt Nation. Yes, And I was just right. looking it up, and I remember that book, how the automobile took over America and how we can take it back, which is kind of what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. She came, she wrote that book, and, uh, and... And her thoughts on that are definitely coming true, because look at all the bike paths and all the the uh, pedestrian lanes that cities, major cities are incorporating. We're trying. Trying. And, and that's why I call it prescient. Yeah. And also, prescient, is that too— No, it's a perfect word now that we've explained who she is and what she's done. Yeah, and uh, I, so I think that all you got to—I mean, we're trying, but if you drive down the road, there obviously there are too many cars, big traffic jams and all the rest of it. Now, I don't know what will happen 
with COVID, that's changing things a lot. Are people going to return to the city? They, they have returned to the roadways. It's interesting, as a frequent driver, I'm, I'm amazed at how much traffic there seems to be. But uh, at the same time, people have now tried to install green back into cities on rooftops and in parks, adding parkland, things like that. So uh, there is a move, and she sounds like one of the pioneers of that movement back in the 70s and 80s when she was writing these Absolutely. things. Absolutely. Yeah. She was a pioneer. And, um, you know, hopefully things will turn around. Her idea was to um, stop sprawl and to use uh, landscape architects as planners. She was um, a big uh, advocate or a big uh, lover of Frederick Law Olmsted. Now, I'm sure you've heard about the, him. The green necklace. He was the famous yeah. landscape architect who did the mall in front of the Capitol, Central Park, the uh, so-called... Uh, Emerald Necklace. Em- Emerald Necklace. Well, the, the the Boston Arboretum and the Common and, and the Public Gardens. Yeah, he was brilliant. Right, and little did I know, and Jane also talked to me, little did she know that Fairstead was where he lived in Brookline, uh, is now run by the National Park Service. It's where he and his sons practiced um, landscape architecture. Now, where I live at the base of uh, Fisher Hill in Brookline, when you drive up on Fisher Hill, all these circular roads, and Mm. it was all planned out by Frederick Law Olmsted. And he believed that People should be able to breathe fresh air and see greenery and go to a place that was remote and country-like, even within the enclosure of the city. So naturally, he favored a place like Arnold Arboretum, where it's a couple of miles from downtown Boston. You go there, you could be in an English garden in the country. Just go to Central Park if you really want an experience that you can literally feel as though you're you're in— Nothing but countryside for miles. It's incredible. So she was uh, an admirer and an, an advocate of his work, and she did a lot for Brookline. And what sounds like a very impressive woman to know, this preservationist. Uh, she was. She was absolutely, you know, she would, um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that happens in Brookline, at that particular time, they were trying to clean up the Muddy River and reestablish a bridge that went over the Muddy River to the Boston side, down near the where Brookline joins with Boston. Near the Kenmore Square area, closer uh, to that. Yeah, a little above yeah, Kenmore right, Square. Right, right. And the people were fighting over that. You've heard of nimbyism. Not in my backyard, yeah, baby. People were saying, <laughs> don't do it. I don't want those Boston people crossing that right, bridge. Right, right. But, you know, she didn't think that was the right attitude. And as she talked about Brookline's lack of affordability and uh, and diversity. She was very uh, forward-looking. There's another person that we wanted to talk about on this particular podcast, and uh, I want to know how you relate the two, and I know you will. And this is a researching radiologist, Dr. John, a.k.a. Jack Little. Yeah, these kind of people uh, were looked backward sometimes in order to look forward I don't know whether that's true. It's just something I thought of as I'm talking to you now. Jack Little was a famous radiologist, a researching radiologist, connected with the Harvard Medical School for many years. And he came from an old Brookline family. And um, I, I don't, it's no need to talk about his radiological research. What he was trying to do 
was find out uh, how bad uh, radiology was uh, in developing bad things in human beings like cancer and so forth. And he had he wrote something like 400 articles. Mm. And he was known all over the world. Now, I was not aware until I started preparing for this program, even though he's a good friend. And in my book, Voices of Brookline, he took the picture of me that appears on the flyleaf or the dust cover when I went over to his office at the Harvard Medicals at the Harvard School of Public Health to interview him. That's the first time I met him. Now, Jack was a very, very personable guy. He had a big smile on his face. And we got along famously. We saw each other several times after that. Same with Joan Held, Jane Holes K. I said she was always very helpful to me. Hey, Larry, yeah, what can I do for you? And um, so, uh, but I don't want to talk a lot about his medical contributions. He's famous for that. And you can, if you want to know about mm -hmm. them, just look up uh, Professor uh, John, otherwise called Jack Little, and you'll find out all about what he did there. What you may not find out about is um, that he was president of the Brookline Historical Society and generally was a great believer in preservation and uh, took it upon himself to uh, do things like making sure that the town, which owns the Edward Devotion House, which goes back to the 1600s, that stands in front of the so-called Florence Ridley School instead of the Devotion School, that's a whole other story, um, should not be despoiled like some other old properties in Brookline had been. And so that even though they did, the Brookline Historical, Brookline Historical Society did not own uh, the Devotion House, what the habit was that the curator of the, or the president of the, I guess the curator of the mm -hmm. Brookline Historical Society, of which I am a member, would live in that house. And that's true until this day, and the house hasn't been touched. Now, let's talk a little about his family history, which lends to this. His mother was a lady by the name of Nina Fletcher Little. She wrote a book called Some Old Brookline Houses, published in 1949. Jack one time asked, so how, why'd you name it Some Old Brookline Houses? And she said, because somebody's going to turn up a house that I didn't know about. That some. Fits the, <laughs> fits <laughs> Not the, all, but some. Maybe most. <laughs> um, so, and his father, a guy named Bertram Kimball Little, was the director for years of the Society for Preservation of New England Antiquities. And they lived in a house at 305, 307 Warren Street that I visited him in as one of these old houses. And his mother and father lived there, too. And now uh, Jack is gone. And his widow, who's also a physician, but French, he was a Francophile, uh, certainly. And they spent time in France, lives there. And um, as I said, I didn't know that he had passed away last year until studying uh, some of the stuff in my files for this program that he had passed away at the age of 90. A little scary because that's my age right now. So what Jack did, uh, he was a great collector of uh, old radios. Ah, now you're talking my long Yeah, what he fixed up all the time. No kidding. And he had a television set that he, that he, he, he uh, made to work on... 
himself. He must have been, I'm just guessing, a member of some of the various organizations of collectors. Uh, oh, yeah. They, they exist all over, particularly in New England. Oh, that is pretty cool. Did you ever see some of his collection? Well, I saw his collection of old cars. He has them at several locations. Sometimes he would actually drive them around town, and he tells the story of uh, driving around the country when he was in college in an old Model T, mm. and his father gave him 100 bucks for the trip, and they took the trip, and they were gone for four months from June to September, and he brought back the $100 and gave it to his father. Now, how did he do that? Well, he and his friend would uh, stop at various places to work, to earn money. Sometimes they worked 20 hours a day for small wages, picking whatever, apples or who knows what. Mm -hmm. And uh, so he not only saw the country from stem to stern, (laughs) but he also um, brought back that hundred bucks. And and saw the country with the help of a Model T. Yeah, and and he did the same thing years later in Europe with a Citroen. Oh. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's right. The French yeah, model. Citroen. So, the, you know, so this, this, so Jack was a, a very, very interesting fellow, doctor by day and I don't know what you'd call it, weekends. I, I think for a lot of uh, very smart medical professional scientists and lawyers, it's good to have hobbies and interests outside. It keeps you sane. Yeah, well, look I at th- you. I mean, baseball and music and all the interests you have. Well, there's so much in the world that's interesting. I mean, one, I, but I think uh, some professionals, some doctors, their major interest is the stock market. Not oh, all yeah. doctors. I don't want to <laughs> demean all doctors. No, but, but you know what I'm saying. It's it's nice to have. Oh, absolutely. Have uh, outside interests that involve art or collecting or any of that. Well, thing. that's what's so much fun about doing these programs with you, Jordan, because you, you're you're the same guy type yeah, of guy. Yeah. Apparently, I mean, I can't see how you could ask me these questions without being a guy who reads about well, stuff. You saw my eyes light up, and when you've come to the studio, you've no doubt noticed at least two antique radios outside, right? Oh yeah. And one's a Crosley, and I'm sure the the late good doctor would know that. But I love this. Kind of, that's why I love conversing with you because you're a walking history book. I mean, uh, and pop culture too, not just hard history, which is great. So, so you knew Jack and interviewed him. Um, what kind of a of a interview was he? Was he forthcoming? Was he oh, always yeah, very forthcoming, open, and um, uh, and and but but this is interesting. His mother, uh, Nina Fletcher Little, that I remember, attended my monitoring school. Uh, okay, I, I, I was going to suggest Little didn't sound like a Jewish name. Well, how- <laughs> well, she did, she really didn't attend Maimonides School, but she lived at Maimonides School before it became oh. <laughs> Maimonides School. For those who are listening outside the area, Maimonides is a uh, Hebrew day school that's right there in Brookline. One of the most famous in New England, if not the country, in fact. It's Absolutely. Well respected. Um, my my wife man. attended Maimonides. But not, and Maimonides himself was a, I think maybe 14th century. Yeah, in the wi- yeah. wise Jewish philosopher mm-hmm. who lived most of his life in Cordoba, mm-hmm. in Spain. Yeah, where, very very often quoted Maimonides by the rabbis and by people in the know. <laughs> oh yeah, he no he was he was quite a guy. So that's where they lived before it became Maimonides. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you as keep you drive, throwing these trick questions at me. Last time we talked about Chloe, and I thought it was somebody's wife or girlfriend. Turned out to be a dog. Anyway, go ahead. 
Well, you know, Maimonides School, anybody, a lot of people who are listening to this who live in Boston, if you drive up Route 9 through Brookline, on the right-hand side, you'll see a wall just before you get to the reservoir on the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, a wall with sort of a pinkish yeah. border on the top. It's very attractive, by the way. And yeah. that contains the Maimonides School. Well, originally, that was... Uh, that was called. That was the Fletcher family home, and in it were all sorts of antiques, the old yacht room, um, and she lived there. And she so came a time after the Maimonides School was uh, came there mm-hmm. that the Brookline Historical Society had its annual meeting in 1978 at the Maimonides School, and Nina, who was a terrific writer, as we've discovered, and was also involved in. Uh, writing a book called American Decorative Wall Painting from 1700 to 1850 and was a force in preserving the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller art collection at Colonial Williamsburg. She lived there and she uh, wrote uh, a a paper called Reminiscences about the Philbrick Road neighborhood. That's the street that Maimonides School is on. So she wrote. She writes about looking out of the house that is now the Maimonides School and seeing fire apparatus. Uh, I guess um, maybe horse drawn running up what it was then. Well, it's still called that. It wasn't Route Nine. It was at that time uh, the uh, I guess I guess it was the Wissa Road. And also uh, another time, Jack recalls that. She was taking her dog for a walk, and the, they had a train or a, like a streetcar that ran from there all the way out to Worcester, and the dog jumped on the car and rode out to Worcester. <laughs> and it wasn't until the next day that they got that dog back because oh, luckily wow. they had something to identify or hung around. You know, thank you for saying that. Route 9 in the Boston area is known as that, but it really is still Worcester Road. That's still its other official name. Uh, is that what they call it? Worcester yeah, Road? it's still referred to as Worcester See, I always Road. learn things from you. Uh, you're learning from me and vice versa. That's fantastic. Well, these are two fascinating people. They're gone now, but keeping their stories alive is really that's, – that's preservation, what we're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, keeping their stories alive. And Nina um, – uh, so she presented her paper at that meeting at the Maimonides School. And um, so, Boy. so they are important people, and uh, preservation is important. And um, I think that, you know these folks. Uh, are, I mean, you know, Jack told me the last thing he told me was how when he one day he decided to go through the woods from down there near the reservoir all the way up to Hammond Pond, mm. and when they got there, it was pristine. There was no shopping mall, a huge shopping mall mm. like there is now. And he talks fondly of going through the woods and uh, how he appreciated that woodsy area within the confines of Newton and Brookline. Uh, those are things that have gone 
to some extent now. But we're doing a little bit of that preservation right now, sort of a audio time capsule. That's what this podcast series is, if you think about it. If you see it that way. I am ha- I'm happy to copyright that. <laughs> and you can have it. You can fill out the paperwork as you're the lawyer. Larry, this is, as always, great fun. Thank you so much. And uh, conversation is alive and well, and that's what keeps us energized. Thank you. Well, you know, I appreciate that, Jordan. And, you know, I really am happy to preserve the memory of people like Jane Holds Kay and Jack Little because each of them were wonderful people. They did wonderful things. They had great values. They wanted us to be able to live in a happy world. The world today is somewhat threatened. Our happiness is somewhat encroached upon. And I think, as you suggest, that the memory of such people is important for us to be able to live our lives as as well as we can. We'll talk a little more about that um, a little bit later when I talk about uh, 9-11 because that's not in the memory of a lot of people because now it's 20 years ago. So um, I just, uh, I guess maybe uh, I... Um, I, I do look backwards to people like that and times like that. Well said. Well said. We'll see you again real soon, Larry. Thank you, Jordan. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Rutman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.